0: Can you trust that God will provide for you what you need, even in the midst of your worst difficulties? Absolutely, yes.
1: Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we get to Part 2 of Pastor Nick's message called, Perfect Power in the Midst of Weakness. Now, before we get too far in this, we got to talk about this title, Pastor. Either you were lacking in creativity or you're trying to do something here because the series we're in is called Perfect Power and Our Weakness. So what's going on here?
0: Well, there are multiple themes that run through the whole book of 2 Corinthians, power and weakness being the main one, and how that relates to the idea of boasting and humility that Paul talks about again and again and again. And all of those threads are finding their peak expression right here in chapter 12 where Paul brings home the main point when he says that the Lord said to him in verse 9 my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness and then Paul goes on to apply what that means for himself and that's what we talk about in today's message
1: so really the whole story arc of second corinthians kind of reaches its peak right here. This is the the pinnacle of it. Absolutely. So I guess it's repetition to make a point. Very good. All right. Here is part two of Pastor Nick Gatsky's message, Perfect Power in the Midst of Weakness.
0: Look at verses six through eight with me. He says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Pause, that'd be a great model for your life, by the way, that no one would think more of you, that you wouldn't be striving for people to think more of you than what they see in you and hear from you. Let's keep going. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul had this ongoing struggle in his life, this weakness, this form of suffering that he calls a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was. Many people think that it was probably a physical illness. Some have thought that perhaps it was a ongoing temptation to a particular sin, Then the funny part of that interpretation is sort of if you come to that conclusion, you most often think that Paul's thorn in the flesh is the exact same temptation that you have in your flesh. If you ask a dorm room of college boys what the thorn in the flesh is, they're going to all tell you the exact same thing. Obviously, pastor, that's lust. Well, that's because that's what young men acutely struggle with, but it's possibly or probably illness. Maybe it's persecution. It's possibly depression. We don't really know. And the reason why he doesn't tell us is because I think there's a universal application of this here. And you use this sometimes in your language. Well, this difficulty in my life is my, is my thorn in the flesh. But it's clear here that this thorn, this difficulty, this weakness, this suffering is delivered by a messenger of Satan And it's allowed by God. And the results are that Paul is pleading to God for relief. Remember that prayer is an expression of dependence on God to do what we cannot do. That we confess our weakness and his power and we ask him to do something. And Paul says that three times he pleaded with God to take the thorn away and God did not do so. God saw fit to allow this chief of servants to continue to suffer. (laughs) Even in the midst of doing incredible things. That's a really far cry from a picture of God that just wants you to be happy and healthy all of your days. (laughs) And so why was it there, this thorn? And why was it not removed? Well, Paul actually tells us twice. Look at the words on the page, verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. And then he goes on to describe the thorn. And then he says again, at the end of verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. (laughs) If anyone would have the right to boast or to become conceited, it would be this guy We've seen it in chapters 10, 11, and 12. He had ethnic and religious and covenantal identity. He had more success in his work than any other person alive other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he was taken all the way to the third heaven. And yet God chose to keep him dependent. And he did so through this thorn, this type of suffering so that he would not become conceited. Now, that would seem to indicate that arrogance, pride, or self-sufficiency were worse dangers to Paul than the physical suffering that God allowed him to endure. That's important to consider for a minute. We live in a culture right now that says that our chief aim, culturally speaking, is physical comfort and happiness, And the biggest danger in our life is a lack of physical comfort or a lack of self-fulfillment. So we struggle to see how this could possibly be the case. And yet it would seem that moral character formation was more important to God than comfort or happiness for his chief servant. Friends, I know that there are some among us who struggle with a thorn, Some of us more than others. Chronic illness, pain, ongoing bouts with depression, persistent temptation, and God has allowed that to happen. And you've pleaded with him asking for him to take it away, but he's chosen not to do so. And you are left asking why. And we don't know all the reasons why, but at the very least we can say, that it has something to do with our dependence on him and the ongoing formation that he is doing in our lives. God does not waste suffering. As Winston Churchill once said, heights rise against the wind, not with it. Peter Marshall, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, once wrote that it is a fact that in Christian experience that the life is a series of troughs and peaks, In his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, God relies on troughs more than peaks. (laughs) And some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. So why does God allow Paul to have a thorn? How does it relate to his boast in the Lord how can he possibly be content with this kind of difficulty in his life? How can you be content with a similar type of difficulty? Well, verse nine and 10 tells us, he says this, look at it with me. He says, in response, the Lord replied to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. In weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can you be content when you're weak? Because God gives perfect power in the midst of your weakness. That is the theme that is displayed throughout the whole book of Second Corinthians. It's a thread that is just woven from start all the way to finish, that your life will in many ways be marked by a variety of forms of weakness, but fear not because God will supply grace, enough grace, sufficient grace for you and perfect power to you. Let's just trace this theme really quickly. All the way back in chapter one, we see in verses eight and nine that we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we have experienced. That's weakness. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how weak we were. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter two, fourteen, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him anywhere. That procession is the procession to the cross of suffering and weakness. He goes ahead in chapter four and says, similar, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Fragile, weak jars to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In chapter six, he says it again. The servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit and genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through the honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying. And behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. God gives perfect power in the midst of our weakness. And he does so because he says the grace that he gives, his favor in your life is sufficient for you, regardless of the circumstances that you are in. And so... How do you access the power of God and this sufficient grace in your life? You do it through ongoing trust and faith. Is it hard? Yes. Can it be painful? Yes. Will it mean that I might not get my way physically or emotionally? Possibly yes. But can you trust that God will provide for you what you need, and everything that you need, even in the midst of your worst difficulties. Absolutely, yes. When we are weak, God displays that he is strong. And as God works uniquely through the difficulties in our life, he does so to display his great power. And that's actually for your benefit because he works in these difficulties in your life in a way that he does not otherwise work when you feel, experience, personal strength or self-sufficiency. And so Paul boasts about this. (laughs) Talks about this boasting a number of times. He says in chapter 10, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in yourself, boast in the Lord. If I must boast, chapter 11, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Why? Chapter 12, verse nine. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Power in weakness points to the very center of God's redemptive plan in the world. You would expect that the sovereign king of the universe, the one who created all, the one who can do anything that he wants to do whenever he wants to do, that's what it means to be sovereign, is influenced by no one outside of his personal will and desire. You would think that the one who knows all and sees all, the one who stands outside of time, which we cannot even get our mind around, that that one would enter into this space and overwhelm his creation with his power and conquer them to bring them back to himself. But that's not what he does. Jesus experiences the weakness of crucifixion before the display of great power of the resurrection. And the resurrection is what secures our future. And so in so many ways, this kind of suffering to glory dynamic that is modeled in the life of Jesus will be the path of all of those who follow him. One author said it this way, and some of you might feel this way today, that a Christian's life or a saint's life is in the hands of God as a bow and arrow are in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something that the saint cannot see. He stretches and he strains. And every now and again, the saint says, I can't stand it anymore. But God does not heed. He goes on stretching until his purpose is in sight. And then he lets fly. And notice the conclusion in verse 10. He says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. For the sake of Christ, I am content this would seem to indicate that the emotion or the disposition of contentment is not something that is pressed upon you. (laughs) It is something that you choose and you can choose even in the most difficult of circumstances. How is that the case? Well, it's the case because as Kent Hughes writes, the spiritual math is never what you might think it is my weakness plus his power equals my strength. Instead, it's always my weakness plus his power equals his strength in me. (laughs) And if it is his power that you rely on and he gives it to you as he wills and he gives grace that is sufficient, everything you need, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of life, then you recognize God does this to accomplish his purposes. And no matter how hard it is, you can choose to be content with what God has for you, knowing that you're experiencing a unique type of resurrection power that you would not otherwise experience if you did not suffer. In the late 1800s, there was a Scottish theologian named John Macduff who describes the joy that you can have in a life, even of difficulty. He does so in poetic terms. This is what he writes. He says, the night dews of affliction and disappointment may fall thickly upon it. The storms of sorrow may beat heavily against it. The winds of adversity may howl fearfully around it. But like those fabled lamps of which we read that century after century illumine the sepulchers of the east, burning with calm and steady light amid the desolation of all earthly things, unchanged and unextinguishable. So does this joy, this living spark struck off from the great source of light and life, outlive all deaths, all changes, until it accompanies the freed spirit of the believer in whom it dwells back to those abodes of joy from whence it came. God gives you, Christian, perfect power in the midst of your greatest weaknesses. And you need to know that because pain is so hard. (laughs) And some of us might be wondering why God is allowing us to experience the pain the way that we are one of the hardest things in life, I think. When you feel something and see something, but it does not line up with what you know to be true. (laughs) What do you do? Why does God do that? Paul gives us an answer. He does so to display his power in you. Your suffering will never outstrip God's supply of grace. You need to know that when you're in the throes suffering carves away all of the secondary sources of happiness that you might have in your life, physical comfort, financial stability, even incredible spiritual experiences like being caught up to the third heaven, all of the secondary things that you might try to find happiness in suffering carves them away. And it leaves you in a place where you depend and rely completely on God and recognize that he is the one who meets the deepest longings of your heart. I want to close this morning by giving you yet another example of this. And this is an example, uh, we could give hundreds of examples of Christians through the years suffering in the midst of experiencing God's great power For those of you that suffer with physical or chronic pain, and those of you who suffer with ongoing bouts of depression, know (laughs) that this example serves acutely for you in such a way for your encouragement because you have not and are not alone. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers in the history of the United Kingdom. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands put their faith in the Lord Jesus through his years of ministry, and yet, in such a powerful ministry that is marked in history. His life coexisted, his ministry and life coexisted with a life of emotional and ongoing physical suffering. Spurgeon suffered from severe and reoccurring bouts of depression throughout his entire adult life. He was immensely popular among some people in London and he was immensely unpopular among some other people in London. And that was the case because he took a firm stand on the word of God and to fight against theological liberalism. But he was often the target for public ridicule and scorn. And beyond that, he cared for his wife, Susanna, who was an invalid for most of their marriage. Charles Spurgeon spent one third of his 27 years in ministry out of the pulpit, because of illness, a third. He knew nearly every insult and hardship and difficulty in his own life. And yet in his lectures to his students, he writes this. He said, if it be inquired why the valley of the shadow of death must be so often traversed by the servants of King Jesus. The answer is not far to find. All of this is promotive of the Lord's mode of working, which is summed up in these words, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Instruments shall be used, but their intrinsic weakness shall be clearly manifested. There shall be no division of the glory, no diminishing of the honor due the great worker, the man shall be emptied of himself and filled then with the Holy Ghost. My witness is that those who are honored of their Lord in public have usually to endure a secret chastening or carry a peculiar cross lest by any means they exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil. Such humbling but salutary messages are depressions whisper in our ears. They tell us in a manner, not to be mistaken, that we are, but men, frail, feeble, and apt to faint. But God is the all powerful loving father who will accomplish his purpose and display his glory in you and through you. And so you can trust him. You can trust him in the midst of your suffering You can trust him in the midst of the thorn. You can trust that his grace gives you absolutely everything that you need. He does not stop short. It is fully sufficient for you, no matter what you feel or see or experience or think. You can trust him like a child trusts his father as he climbs up onto a great height and blindly plunges himself off backwards into the air only to be caught before he sustains injury. God gives perfect power in the midst of our weakness. And so you can be content and even have joy in the midst of it. So let's grow in contentment and joy and trust together.
1: Thanks, Pastor. That wraps up part two of our message called Perfect Power in the Midst of Weakness. Listen in next time as we move on into the rest of chapter 12 in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've been touched by this particular message, hearing about Paul boasting in the Lord in the midst of his weakness and leaning on Jesus alone for his strength, would you send us a note? We'd love to pray with you that you would continue to focus your life and your heart on Jesus. You've been listening to Dr. Nick Gatsky in A Better Word from Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. Think about what words are most important to you. Can you think of them? I mean, for me at this phase of life, with five kids, a couple of teenagers, nap is one of my favorite words. But it has to be more than that, right? How about the word reconciliation or regeneration or fellowship? We as Christians have some vocabulary terms we really have to be familiar with. We can't just stick with things like naps. Although Jesus napped, we do have to know other words as well. So, we've got a resource for you this month at A Better Word that'll help you with terms like that. It's by J.I. Packer, and it's a book called 18 Words, the most important words you will ever know. And we'll send it to you with your gift this month to A Better Word. To learn more about how to donate today, just go to abetterword.org. That's A Word. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.